From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome. Jerome Corsi this hour, discussing the plot to take down the Trump presidency. Just a reminder, we're not live streaming on our YouTube channel tonight. However, the YouTube live stream returns next week. But the audio from this radio program will be uploaded to the Strange Planet YouTube channel in a day or two. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Carlos Cagina is my technical producer. Investigative journalist Jerome Corsi is here to discuss the operation to bring down the Commander-in-Chief, a slow-moving coup d'etat engineered by a coterie of the American elite and the deep state. The plot officially began July 31, 2016, with a counterintelligence investigation that the FBI opened to probe Russian infiltration of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. But the Bureau never followed any Russians. In fact, it was an operation to sabotage Trump, the candidate, then president-elect, and finally the presidency. The conspirators included political political operatives, law enforcement, and intelligence officials, and the press. After surviving the Russia hoax, the Ukraine hoax, and impeachment, The deep state and the left are now seizing upon the coronavirus pandemic and recent protests, rioting, looting, and racial unrest in one last-ditch effort to bring down the Trump presidency. Dr. Jerome Corsi received a Ph.D. from Harvard University in political science. He's written many books and articles and is an expert on political violence and terrorism. In March of 2005, Dr. Corsi helped found and launch the Iran Freedom Foundation, a nonprofit educational and charitable organization established to educate the public about the Islamic Republic of Iran and to promote freedom in the region. He's the author of a number of several New York Times best-selling books, including The Obama Nation, America for Sale, Why Israel Can't Wait, The Great Oil Conspiracy, Who Really Killed Kennedy, Hunting Hitler, Killing the Deep State, Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt, and his latest, The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. Jerome Corsi, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to be back with you. Thank you. It's been a while since we talked. I think the last time I had you on the program, you were writing about uh, the hunt for Hitler. So that tells you how long it's been. And I want to go back to your book, Silent No More, How I Became a Political Prisoner of Mueller's Witch Hunt. Let's just explain briefly how you got caught up in that perjury trap, along with Roger Stone, in terms of possible connection to uh, WikiLeaks. Just explain how that all went down. Well, I was at that time a reporter for WorldNet Daily, and I had been working with Roger Stone, who was working with the campaign. And in uh, July and August 2016, I took a trip to Italy. It was our 25th wedding anniversary, and I had time. I figured out on my own that uh, Julian Assange at that time had Podesta's emails, and he was going to release them in October. And I told this to Roger and to several others, and, of course, the Mueller team thought I had a connection, direct connection to Assange that could have then been given to Stone, and this would have been the Russian collusion where <clears throat> Trump's campaign would have coordinated with Assange when to release those emails. But I didn't have that connection at all. I just figured it out on my own, and the, the Mueller prosecutors wouldn't believe that because I figured it out precisely. Uh, I pretty much knew what would be in these emails. I've been studying Podesta a long time. 
and uh, could predict how they would be used in October and just a few at a time. So they, when I refused to give them a name because I didn't have a name to connect to Assange, they said, well, they were going to charge me with perjury. It would get you to forget a few emails, and, and, and then I would go to prison for 25 years, be tried in, by a jury in Washington, D.C. that would hate me, and I'd be convicted, and I'd spend the rest of my life in prison. And I basically told them that uh, I, if that's what they wanted to do, go ahead, but I was not going to swear before God and this federal judge to a crime I didn't commit. And they never indicted me. And I think my refusal to be pressured, I, I think they were suborning perjury. They were trying to get me to lie. I think they knew it. Uh, was uh, This, I think, was them. They were the criminals, the prosecutors, and I was never indicted. So uh, I basically won that one by telling the truth. Roger Stone, I believe, faces 40 months. Now, given the coronavirus outbreak in prisons, he's fearful that this could be a death sentence. What can you tell us about Roger's situation right now? I always felt that the prosecution was completely politically motivated because many people, James Clapper, director of national intelligence, list goes on, lied to Congress. And uh, Roger... Uh, I think basically would have, if had he been opposing Donald Trump, would have been excused from this. So I think it was clearly a political indictment and conviction of Roger. The jury hated him, like the same thing Mueller threatened me with, and he was convicted. So I don't know whether he'll get a pardon or go to prison, but I think it's completely, it shows how justice in the United States has been weaponized and politicized under the Obama administration. And those same prosecutors are still in the Department of Justice under Attorney General Barr. Let's move ahead now to the recent book, The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. This is available as an e-book, correct? Is it coming out in hard copy as well? There's going to be an e-book. I'm doing more e-books now because they're so current, and you can download them immediately. By the time I'd have to get a hardcover, it'd be six months or more, and the bookstores are closed anyway. So it's a Corsi Nation, C-O-R-S-I Nation dot com, my website. And this book is The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. And it's it's been doing quite well and I think is extremely timely. And uh, I, I really do lay out that this is a systematic attempt, a coup d'etat, to remove Donald Trump from the White House. And it's planned and orchestrated. And I've really gone through chapter and verses to how it's been implemented the same way that the same kind of hard left group, um, deep staters, globalists, Soros involved, uh, conducted the Arab Springs to destabilize governments in northern Africa in 2011, uh, the Maidan uprising in Ukraine in 2014, and now they're taking these techniques here to the United States and trying to destabilize, uh, weaken the United States, destroy the Constitution, but their primary objective is to have Donald Trump removed from the presidency. In the foreword of the book, you give thanks to Boris, who is a semi-regular fixture on your program, Corsi Nation. Just tell us a little bit about who Boris is. Well, Boris is a uh, was Russian-Ukrainian Jew. He had a group that was providing him information. They were very good. I could validate all their information, and 
it wasn't classified, but it was really putting the puzzle pieces together. Uh, I think that group, I think Boris is now done for the time being. These people come and go. I've had um, many different groups that have helped me over the years, and they only last a while. So Boris was useful in writing that book, but I think Boris is now not going to be operative with the same group or certainly not in touch with me. As you point out on your program, you don't want to deal with classified information. I mean, that that just opens up a whole a can of worms. But right. uh, can you maybe walk me quickly through the process of how you vetted Boris and decided that he was credible? A couple of things. Boris would say, here's events that happened and explain them in a way that was not the mainstream media narrative. And I go back and research and find that he was, in fact, correct. There was validation, for instance, on things of the op- various operatives, James Comey and the others during the Operation Crossfire Hurricane. Uh, Boris seemed to pretty much know who was doing what. And again, through publicly available information, the transcripts, I could go in and validate it. It was just these were points that were very detailed. and Most people, including me, might not have occurred to see the significance of these events the first time. And then he would say, well, this is going to happen, or this is on, this is in play. He told me weeks before Secretary of Defense Esper came out and was insubordinate and said he would not use troops, was unwilling to, even if President Trump invoked the Insurrection Act because he didn't want to violate the free speech rights of the protesters. And uh, I was not looking at these as peaceful protests. Uh, Boris warned me that Esper was not on board with Trump uh, two or three weeks before it happened. And so then when it happened, it really confirmed the information I'd been given. Do you have a sense of who Boris is? I mean, is he intelligence? Is he simply sort of a a deep throat type character who has sources that are well connected? Who, Who is this character? Well, he was actually, I knew exactly who he was, but I have not, I mean, he, he's not a intelligence, he's never worked for the government of any country. Uh, he is a U.S. citizen now, he was born in Ukraine, Russia, in that area, and lived there for many years, uh, but now is a U.S. citizen, and he doesn't have any special qualifications. His group, I'm not even sure he knew who his group was, they communicated with him and various codes, and he got the information, and then he tried to disseminate it. He would often even give it to the government, FBI, or to write emails to various government officials. And the the group uh, had been following me, evidently, for some time, especially after, I guess, the Mueller incidents, and saw that I was effective, effectively communicating. I've been doing this now since 2004, I've written 25 books in that time, and I have actually changed history with some of them. The Certainly the first, which was writ, co-authored with John O'Neill, the Swift Boat book, Unfit for Command, against John Kerry. And Kerry lost that election. I think the book had an impact. Um, many, many other books. Uh, I've been writing about the Security and Prosperity Partnership in North America under George W. Bush. And uh, eventually that was closed down because I didn't want to see the globalism create a North American union. I mean, I've, over and over again, I've written books that have had an impact on history. And I think this group realized it and wanted uh, to help Donald Trump stay in office. And so, um, you know, I've intervened. I've 
a couple of times been, I've been doing tweets and the like. I wanted to see Benjamin Netanyahu stay in power in uh, in Israel, and I basically was able to communicate a lot of the things that I knew about what Obama had done to uh, pay for, put operatives in Israel to um, to try to destroy Netanyahu, and so you know I've I've been able to make an impact at different times, and I think the group recognized that and wanted to share information with me so I could uh, make an impact on the public policy, hopefully in their view and in my view, to save President Trump's presidency from this coup attempt, which is ongoing. There was a New Yorker magazine article that the writer said that Roger Stone is the progenitor and Jerome Corsi is the expositor of Donald Trump's worldview. Aside from the rest of the article, which was kind of a hit piece, how do you feel about that descriptor? Well, I've never claimed that I'm speaking for Donald Trump. I mean, I'm, I articulate policy positions and analysis that are my own, and that many times they're in accord with Donald Trump. But I'm, I've not spoken to Donald Trump since he's been president. Uh, I've known him for about 40 years in New York, but it was always a very professional, kind of cordial relationship. I was often I had a career in international banking and working with banks in the United States. And for a couple of years, when he owned the hotel, I was virtually a full-time VIP resident of the Plaza Hotel. So I mean, I got to meet Donald Trump and speak with him. But um, and we, you know, maintained a kind of a cordial relationship through those years. But I'm not a close confidant. I don't advise Donald Trump, and I don't claim to speak for him. In the book, you raise a very interesting question. I think many of us have asked ourselves, and no doubt the president has asked himself this, and the first lady and all the members of the Trump family, and that is, why would he consider ever running for president after all of this? It's a unusual thing. I mean, I've known Trump was going to was thinking about running for president for maybe 30 years, and clearly Roger Stone was an influence in that because Roger had always believed that Trump had the capability to be president and win, run for president and win. And Roger had been an advisor to Donald Trump, a political advisor, on and off for many years. Uh, And I I think Donald Trump always felt like it was a destiny or uh, that he had a, uh, somehow or other, was meant to be president. And uh, finally decided, I guess, just to do it. Uh, He, you know, several times it tentatively said, I'm going to run for president, or actually made some initial attempts to run for president. But in 2015, he was very serious about that and decided that I think at that point in his life, he was either going to do it then or it wasn't going to happen. And so I'm not sure Donald Trump even expected to win, even on election night. I think it was a surprise to everyone, including to Donald Trump. But um, he did manage to communicate with the people. And uh, why he wants to put up with all this grief, uh, he's clearly at odds with the, you know, the deep state globalists who in the United States want to see us go into a uh, international new world order, uh, want to get rid of the Constitution. And the Democrats in the United States have moved to become pretty much out, out, you know, outspoken socialists. And uh, you get the Black Lives Matter, which is clearly a Maoist group. And uh, we we have quite a lot of leftist influence, and the globalists, even in the Washington establishment, uh, the Obama had weaponized the Department of Justice. 
the FBI, uh, the IRS. Uh, the bureaucracy is very comfortable in Washington. They are they've positions where they largely can't be fired. Uh, the they even with spouses, one takes a position in one department and they go up in the ladder, changing positions. They are easily in and out of government, working for law firms or consulting organizations or lobbyists. And Donald Trump comes in and he's disruptive to this game. And uh, I don't think that the establishment liked it, of course, that challenged their economic interests and their cozy position in the power structure of the United States. And so Donald Trump, with his America First agenda, was a natural enemy to these people. You say that the plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency began the moment he descended the escalator in June of 2015 at the Trump Tower to announce his candidacy. Who was behind the plan from that early time period? I mean, the moment he announced this plan was already being hatched. By whom? Well, I think it started in the intelligence community. I think it was largely John Brennan and uh, working together with British intelligence and the Five Eyes, and you know, finally Italian intelligence. I think was involved and Australian intelligence, and these internationalists uh, started to say, you know, Donald Trump was a threat to interests in Great Britain. He was in favor of Brexit, pulling out of the EU. He um, strongly criticized the uh, immigration policies that were in the EU, allowing so many of the refugees from the Middle East to come in and change the fundamental culture of Europe. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, you know, was, I think, a threat even to Europe and saying things like pulling out of NATO. And these were issues that, uh, again, Europe had moved in such a globalist direction with the EU, and Great Britain was on the verge, if you remember, the actual Brexit vote kind of prefigured our election in that it happened and no one expected Great Britain to vote to pull out of the EU. That's to succeed, it did. And then just, you know, it was followed by Trump winning. I think we are experiencing a a reaction against this globalism and outsourcing and losing of jobs and the um, opening of borders and the loss of national identity. I think these are challenging to a lot of traditional beliefs, and our Constitution is founded on a set of very traditional uh, Christian Judeo, you know, Judeo-Christian principles. And our founders were saying very clearly that if we weren't a moral people with a belief in God, the system would not work. And I think that the left has gone so far in a kind of godless secular direction that that is, in fact, one of the conflicts we're seeing, and I think it's very fundamental. Do you see Donald Trump as a standard bearer for the nation-state in opposition to the forces of globalism? I do, and I think he, more fundamentally, you know, he was raised in a church in Manhattan that was Norman Vincent Peale, who um, was very influential in the 50s, wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, and was you know strong Christian faith. Uh, you can see Donald Trump even moving our embassy to Jerusalem. Strong tradition in Judeo-Christian tradition. That's considered by many, including me, to have been a biblical decision. 
similar to when Harry Truman voted, decided to allow the United Nations to have uh, Resolution 181, which was the partition of Palestine, to create Israel. Even at that time, the State Department, in the person of George Marshall, who was the leading commander for Franklin Roosevelt in World War II in the United States, he was then Secretary of State for Harry Truman, and Marshall said if Truman allowed Israel to be created, he would never vote for another Democrat. And uh, Truman said, well, do what you have to do. He, it, that was another strong decision. And Truman looked like he was going to lose in 48. There's that famous picture where Truman is holding up the Chicago Tribune. He's saying that the paper says Dewey beats Truman. And actually, Truman had this whistle-stop train campaign, campaign very strong, and beat Dewey that nobody expected. And uh, I think Trump is again in that kind of situation. He uh, you know, has done some strong things for Israel. He has um, clearly challenged the outsourcing uh, to China, which now is in the wake of COVID-19, with us realizing even our pharmaceuticals come from China. Uh, I think there's been massive re-engineering of this internationalist global agenda. And uh, Trump has led that charge. In the United States, I think there's a substantial, if not a majority, of Americans who have not seen the benefits that were promised to globalism, except to uh, the elite and the multinational corporations. All right, we're going to take a quick time out. You mentioned uh, Truman and the whistle stop. FDR had the fireside chats, the radio, and I suppose uh, Trump has Twitter. We'll uh, pick this up on the other side with Jerome Corsi, the author of The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We're back with Jerome Corsi, CorsiNation.com. Corsi, C-O-R-S-I, Nation.com. And uh, the book is The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. So this intelligence plot to get rid of Trump, even before he was uh, sworn in, begins in 2015. Obviously, that doesn't happen. He withstands or perseveres through the Mueller probe, the Russian hoax, the Ukrainian hoax. Now we have COVID-19. To what extent was that simply seized upon by the globalists and the progressive elements of the Democratic Party? And to what extent was it created? Well, I think there are two different questions. Increasingly, the initial story in Wuhan that this came from a wet market where bats were bat soup, that was clearly disinformation because the photographs shown to prove that were from Indonesia. That particular market in Wuhan does not have bats in it or bat soup. And I think the analyses of the genome of the virus show that it was created in a laboratory, not naturally occurring in nature. And Again, that's not been established because many of these articles get criticized and uh, get withdrawn. But I think the genome of it is is pretty clear in the analysis I've done of it. At any rate, when the virus hit, it was clearly exploited by the hard left globalists who said, well, let's just shut down the country. And you have to look at the CDC, our Centers for Disease Control, and the National Institute of Health. They're not government organizations as such. They are 501c3 
partnerships, tax-deferred partnerships with public-private sectors to them, and they're only quasi-governmental. They take a lot of foundation money from Big Pharmacy, from the Gates Foundation, and people like Fauci have, and the other senior MDs or physicians on staff end up getting patents on disease treatments, and millions of dollars are paid to those patents when Big Pharmacy develops medications. So clearly they opposed a hydroxychloroquine zinc, a very cheap medication that has seemingly worked around the world. I've even got a tele-MD program on my website. I don't sell hydroxychloroquine, but we can get you interviews with doctors who can prescribe it if you need it, including for prevention. Russia is getting enough hydroxychloroquine for the entire population. And what we did was we quarantined and shut down the economy which brought an end, at least temporarily, to Donald Trump's ragingly good economy, which the Democrats did not want him to run on. And typically, in a health emergency, you quarantine the sick. You don't quarantine the healthy. And I'm not even clear that there's good science that demonstrates that this prevented lives, especially when governors like Cuomo put COVID-19 patients inside nursing homes, which, again... I think it's unconscionable, but it seems to serve a political agenda. And, uh, you know, the hard left, I don't think, has the value for life and considers these people old and they were going to die anyway. In fact, Cuomo virtually said that. So I think it was played, the COVID-19, by the hard left as a political agenda. And, and the governors, the Democratic governors, still are reluctant to open the states. If they can get voting by mail... Uh, Again, that's been demonstrated to be very unreliable, especially with absentee ballots collected by anyone in the United States. They can be easily forged or this vote harvesting when you have provisional ballots that are accepted after the election is over and say, how many do we need in order to swing elections? So I think this whole Democratic Party reaction to the virus is clearly an assault on Trump. We hear so much about Russian collusion, but we never hear about Chinese collusion and the Chinese efforts to hack into government agencies and steal data and so forth of of government employees. To what extent do you think is the, the radical left, the progressive element of the Democratic Party, colluding with China in all of this? Because obviously China has much to lose with a Trump presidency. Well, clearly, I mean, going back to the Clinton presidency, there were clear ties where Bill Clinton was accepting campaign contributions from China. There were even some prosecutions on it. I think the Johnny Chung case is one I remember distinctly. But the openness to China and trying to allow China to have these unfair trade agreements, China's acted like a mercantilist country even in the World Health Organization, which is supposed to be a free trade organization. And uh, China's not been disciplined, but that's been by Republican and Democratic Party presidents alike until Donald Trump. Donald Trump's the first one who applied discipline to China, and I don't think China has received it very well. In fact, I think it has put China in a difficult position. In this book, I say, in the plan to remove Donald Trump, I'd say China, at a last stage to get rid of Donald Trump, would actually go to war with the United States. Uh, because China itself is going to face a internal revolution uh, over famine in the country, 
by the end of this year, the economy of China is truly very fragile. And uh, the economic damage done by the tariffs and the ending of outsourcing in the United States to China, I think has been very ec economically detrimental to China, and China's retaliating. I think they're very, very much more in an aggressive position towards the United States right now than they were um, under the Obama administration, where they seemed to get all the advantages they wanted. It was a, a rather sad, disturbing display to see Democrats and many in the media applauding the uh, the cratering of the U.S. economy, the big hit to the stock market, which ha has subsequently bounced back. We had those tremendous May job numbers, 2.5 million new jobs despite projections of job losses. Do you see a sort of a V-shaped recovery that, that may end up rescuing Trump's election chances? Well, I think you've hit on why the Democratic governors are so reluctant to open up these states quickly. Uh, some states like Georgia are doing quite well economically. Uh, a few states never closed down out in the West. And New York and New Jersey are still largely closed down. Uh, it's also having a massive impact on New York. I mean, um, New York People are uh, leaving New York in droves, just like they're leaving Seattle, and uh, they're not going to pay the expensive rents in New York when you can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to a theater, you can't go to a museum, and people are paying outrageous rents. The vacancy in New York has really skyrocketed, and I expect it's going to have impact on the value of property in New York that will be fairly devastating to the city. And again, we've got a leftist governor and mayor, and the de Blasio, the city's becoming increasingly unsafe. This war against the police, the defunding the police, uh, I think the you know, police any day in any interaction with a minority they could not only lose their career, but could be indicted for a very serious crime. I mean, who's going to respond the officer is going to say, I'm just not going to answer that call. When I get there, I'm not going to do anything. And you're seeing a, a very big spike in shootings and in violence uh, in cities like New York, Chicago. And, and people are questioning, are we ever going to reopen our businesses? Are we, you know, why are we staying here in New York? So th there's some long-term, you say, a V-shaped recovery. I think the United States economy will respond quickly I'm not sure it'll ever be quite the same. Now people have learned that they can work much more effectively remotely, and I think we're going to see new work configurations coming out. And uh, I think we'll see if the Democrats are going to control the cities, uh, they're going to become increasingly unsafe and undesirable. I mean, one of the boomerang effects is with the Antifa and Black Lives Matter in the streets and the tearing down of monuments, and, you know, repeat of what went on in the Arab Spring uh, the same kind of dynamics of these extreme leftists, the you know the, the Maoist tactics, and people are saying this is the future. Do they want to live in this future? So I mean, the Democratic Party is running its 2020 presidential campaign, and it looks to me like violence in the streets, uh, extortion of businesses. I mean, this is the mafia shakedown routine. Black Lives Matter comes to a major corporations say, you know, we really like your retail stores, all these hamburgers place, places you have, but uh, if you don't take a knee to Black Lives Matter and pay us millions of dollars, 
we may just not be able to stop people from burning them down and spray painting them all over the place. I don't think you'll have a business. Jerome, I've got to jump in here. happening right now. I've got to jump in. We'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, continue our discussion. The plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency. Author Jerome Corsi stays with us on The Conspiracy Show. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Jerome, before we proceed, how do we get a copy of the plan to remove Donald Trump from the presidency? Well, thank you, Richard. It's on CorsiNation.com, C-O-R-S-I Nation.com. And it's an e-book. I've got several e-books, including one there on COVID-20, which I think is the new virus that's already been released in China. And, um, and the e-books are easily download, downloaded. And uh, you can read them the same day. They're designed to be packed with information, but easy to read. And they're doing quite well. I think this is the new format. Bookstores aren't even open in the United States. So one way to sell books is to do these e-books that are very, very current. You don't have to wait to publish the hardcover, which takes six months or longer to get into bookstores. Uh, This, I think, is the future. And I'm seeing changes in what I do. Uh, as a investigative reporter and an author, and I'm sure these changes are going to be extensive throughout the U.S. economy. During the last segment, you, we touched upon the racial unrest, the protesting, the looting, the rioting going on in the United States and elsewhere. To what extent was that coordinated or at least seized upon to take Donald Trump down? This has been a model. It's, I point out in this book, the plan you know, to take to remove Donald Trump from the presidency, the people who are architecting on the left, they've known and understood the use of violence and protests in order to cause a change in government, a coup d'etat. They understood the techniques of these, and you can see a pattern. So, for instance, you take the Arab Spring, in fact, Tahir Square in Egypt, and you had the same kind of protest that was prolonged, or Maidan in Ukraine. Soros was involved in both of these types of operations. Violence comes in and these protesters occupy an area of the city and they stay. And then at some point, they're portrayed as peaceful protesters and the media supports them and their cause, but they're trying to topple Mubarak or trying to topple Yanukovych in Ukraine. Then the violence intensifies. Somehow or other, there's an incident. So, you know, some of the protesters were accosted by supporters of Mubarak who come into Tehar Square even riding camels. And now there's the police come in to try to get control, or even the military police, and the violence escalates. There are shootings. The police start shooting some of the crowd. There's burnings. And Maidan, snipers killed 50 of the protesters. And the protesters said, well, the, no one never really knew who the snipers were. They could easily have been a false flag. They weren't found. But they were blamed on Yanukovych, and Maidan Square went intensely crazy. So I'm just waiting for an incident with Black Lives Matters that is blamed on white supremacists, and the violence escalates at a level that will be extremely intense, because the evidence of white supremacists in the United States is really not extensive. 
You know, David Duke is largely older these days and doesn't have a big movement. I think in the United States, by and large, racial equality is accepted. And now this whole intensifying of the racial antagonism over incidents between police and blacks who are unarmed who get killed, there's only 10 or 15 of those incidents any time in the United States an entire year. Uh, the vast majority of deaths of blacks by violence is blacks killing blacks. And the statistics are there. And yet when one of these incidents occurs, they are shocking. And uh, even Obama was sending in Eric Holder to Ferguson, our attorney general, who said that clearly it, the police were wrong in the shooting of Michael Brown. Well, it turned out Officer Darren Wilson, when he shot Michael Brown, Michael Brown was not a big kid, a gentle giant, hands up, don't shoot. He just robbed a convenience store. He was walking in the middle of the street. The officer was trying to get him out of the middle of the street. Michael Brown charged the officer, struggled for trying to get the officer's gun, and was killed in the altercation. The officer was never charged with the crime. But the narrative, the taking of that incident, the sending of Holder into, um, into Ferguson with an you know, inflammatory statement that the police were wrong. Uh, Soros has been funding for 20 years, groups to defund the police on the, on the charge that we're an incrimination nation. This, these don't happen, if you look at the funding and the left's movements, these are very, very organized and they follow patterns. And yet they are presented by the media as being peaceful protesters with a just cause. Uh, I remember Martin Luther King, I'm old enough to have seen Martin Luther King, he was for equal rights. This this movement, which is surprisingly dominated by white protesters, is for, again, another form of racism, having whites take a knee to African-Americans. Now, that's not going to solve racial tension in the world. What's going to solve racial tension in the world is the way Martin Luther King wanted to go. We'll take one final time out, come back, and uh, finish our discussion with Jerome Corsi, the author of The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. Back with more in a moment. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Jerome Corsi, CorsiNation.com. And the book is The Plan to Remove Donald Trump from the Presidency. To what extent do you think that this coordinated social unrest, protesting, rioting, looting has been overplayed and will in fact play into Trump as the law and order president and thus rather than hurt his chances will increase his chances for re-election? I I think uh, it is already boomeranging in the sense that uh, I'm saying you've just seen the Democratic future. They're running in the streets the Democrats' 2020 presidential campaign. And if this is the future you want, you know, occupy in this autonomous zone in uh, Seattle. Well, they've just had another set of shootings. I mean, there's people, and, and you can't, the ambulance can't get in, the police aren't coming in, and you've got a lawless, even the people who live there are being terrorized. Now, Americans are looking at this saying, if this is what the Democrats are doing to our cities and the governor and the mayor said, tear down the statues and we don't want this history. I mean, you know, I don't have a Confederate statue 
in my home, but you know, I and I don't want one. But the point is, I still respect the fact that the Civil War was fought, and I don't want to erase history. Nations that begin erasing their history, going down this completely Marxist or Maoist. I mean, this was done in the Cultural Revolution. We we need to understand history. We're not captive to history. And we need to celebrate the fact that social injustice was corrected in the United States. I think this nation has done more for recognizing all peoples of all races on equal basis than any country has ever done in the history of the world. And this, I think, needs to be celebrated. And when we start rewriting and destroying history, what's next? Well, okay, we get rid of the Confederate statues. Now they're getting rid of Teddy Roosevelt statues, even Lincoln statues. Well, why don't we get rid of the flag? Because, you know, the, the Constitution and the, and the Marxist interpretation was written by slaveholders. Well, even that was recognized at the time of the founding as a problem that they couldn't solve, but they were going to have to solve. And the Civil War was recognized widely as, you know, the, the crime being paid for with another massive war, one of the most bloody in American history. And at the end of that war watch Steven Spielberg's film on Lincoln, you'll never be told that the senators and congressmen who wanted the 13th Amendment passed to give equal rights to blacks, those were the Republicans. The Democrats were the slaveholders. The Democrats were the ones who fought the Civil War to keep slavery. Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. Right. You won't hear that. Right. But we need to have history be understood, and this idea of destroying history, you know, People look at it and say, the next thing you know, you can have Antifa running my town. I mean, I did an interview today and this week in West Virginia. And they're saying, well, they're not here. I said, well, they're going to be there because their intention is to be in your neighborhood and to, you know, they're going to go across the whole country. It's what they did in the Cultural Revolution. These little red books and these, you know, the Maoists in the streets say, they destroyed an entire group of intellectuals. They destroyed an entire generation in in China that was the culture and established it with this chaos where they were throwing people, you know, beating old women. Uh, the, the brutality of this, if this is the Democratic Party's 2020 presidential election, I think Americans are seeing it that. Uh, I don't see anybody. I mean, Joe Biden doesn't have a chance. Joe Biden won't come out of his basement. Looks like he's already got dementia. If this right. plan fails, what is left in the left's arsenal to take down President Trump? Well, I see, you know, it's going it, to, this is going to continue with more and more all the way until the election. And I, I see we've now got, you know, the, the generals have come out and said that they don't think that President Trump is respecting the rights of the protesters. And so is the military insubordinate? They're beginning to question uh, General Kelly, who was the White House chief of staff, said that maybe Donald Trump isn't stable. And now you got John Bolton this week. we got Bolton week. He's written a book and saying he disagrees with President Trump's leadership style, and he never knew what he was going to say in a meeting. Well, John Bolton, I've known for 15 years. He's only ever wanted to bomb Iran and was the one who told everybody that we had weapons of mass destruction with Saddam Hussein, got George W. Bush to invade Iraq, which I thought was a bad idea. I still think it was a terrible idea. I don't want to go to war with Iran. I think war is the problem in the Middle East, not the solution. And who who cares what John... I think John Bolton was the problem. I'm glad he's gone. And, you know, we don't need warmongers. What 
President Trump is trying to do with economic sanctions and um, trying to carve a peace in the Middle East where, again, people are questioning, do we want to live under this radical Islamic terrorism? Even I see protests going on in Syria where people are saying, enough of this. They, you know, Finally, I think reasonable people decide the world torn up by an angry left with an agenda that's, that's, that is based on this insanity, that we shouldn't have history, that we shouldn't have God, that we that everything is racist, that everybody's a racist, we should kneel to blacks. I mean, this, you know, extortion of the major corporations, burning down cities. Uh, you go to New York City, who's going to go back into New York City under de Blasio? This, the stores are all boarded up, this, this, the shops have been burned, and Antifa is still in the streets. Who's even going to walk around New York City, let alone open up New York City to business? Right. Sorry, you mentioned the generals now ahead, li- yes. lining up against Trump. It sounds like they're going to take another run up that 25th Amendment hill. Are they going to try and once again claim that Trump is unfit for office? Are they going to, I don't know, are they going to uh, put a wire on Vice President Mike Pence? How are, they going to, how are they going to try and take down Trump? It's a central part of my book. I say the 25th Amendment's being keyed, teed up right now under this ar- argument that Trump is unstable, mentally unstable, never knew what he was going to do in a meeting. Well, Trump's got a very different style, and there's no nothing in our Constitution that says the president has to have a style that the bureaucracy likes, agrees with their interagency consensus, whatever that means. The State Department isn't even in the Constitution. And I just heard all these bureaucrats in the Ukraine hearings, one after the other, well, he disagreed with our interagency policy on Ukraine. Who cares? Move the State Department to Death Valley. It doesn't exist in the Constitution. Let all these bureaucrats quit. Uh, they now think that the bureaucrats think that they're in charge of the government. The military, Donald Trump's the commander-in-chief. The uh, 25th Amendment, though, I think is in the works because uh, it takes, there's 15 cabinet members that get to vote. And if a majority, which will be eight, vote to remove Donald Trump, there's a long procedure. But I think the idea is to get this process started the same way the Democrats got impeachment started with a trial, actual trial in the Senate. Well, it didn't go anywhere, but it was done to destabilize Trump. And I think all it did was solidify Trump's support. Uh, These are extreme measures, and these are coup d'etats, and it becomes apparent to people, do we want to live? We're going to be having Antifa. You 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 want to call the police. Antifa is going to show up. They're going to terrorize your family, beat up everybody, spray paint the place, and then make sure it burns down. So just in the minute that remains, would a resounding Trump re-election coupled with a Republican win in the House and maintaining the majority in the Senate, will that put an end to this coup d'etat? I think the left has gone all in. Like in poker, they put all their chips. This is the hand they want to play. And I think it's before they wanted to make their move and more dramatic. I think they thought they would have Hillary and it would be done gradually. But they're scared that Donald Trump is wins re-election. The coup d'etat traders will face treason charges. Uh, the bureaucracy in this globalism is going to be broken up. Donald Trump's going to have in the second term the ability to make changes that are basic in breaking these multinational corporations and the globalists. Uh, stealing money from the workers of the United States, sending jobs overseas, all of this architecture 
it really goes back to the end of World War II, United Nations and all forward, Donald Trump's going to deconstruct it. So we're in a final pitch battle as to whether we're going to march forward as a globalist nation in which the vast majority of people are not much better off than serfs and have only rights that the state wants to grant them, where the communist Chinese regime will give you a social score based upon your ideas. I think most Americans don't want to live in that kind of a world. But we're testing that proposition right now. Jerome Corsi, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you again, Richard. Okay, that's it for me. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.